Good evening. Nomination hearings begin for Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson, set to become the first black woman Supreme Court justice. A showdown between tankers filled with Russian oil and Greenpeace near New York Harbor, and some say it's too quick to end COVID mandates. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Monday, March 21st, 2022. In her opening remarks to the Senate Judiciary Committee, Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson said if confirmed to the Supreme Court, she'll work to defend the Constitution and American democracy. Members of this committee, if I am confirmed, I commit to you that I will work productively to support and defend the Constitution and this grand experiment of American democracy that has endured over these past 246 years. I know that my role as a judge is a limited one, that the Constitution empowers me only to decide cases and controversies that are properly presented. And I know that my judicial role is further constrained by careful adherence to precedent. I also believe in transparency that people should know precisely what I think and the basis for my decision. During this hearing, I hope that you will see how much I love our country and the Constitution and the rights that make us free. Ensuring that the words engraved on the front of the Supreme Court building equal justice under law are a reality and not just an ideal. South Carolina Republican Lindsey Graham, who has voted to approve her during other nomination hearings, seemed predisposed to vote no. Unusual for recent contentious nominations to the court, though, several Republicans are expected to support Brown's nomination, although she was a public defender before becoming a judge. Another public defender, well known to WBI listeners, is Marjorie Cohen. The thing that was so stunning about what she said is that she thinks it's very important that litigants know that the judge has heard them. One of the the things that she's really known for is speaking not just to the lawyers in the litigation, but also to the clients as well on, on either side. She's done that as a judge. And she said, I decide cases from a neutral posture. Um, She is being accused by the right-wingers of being biased, particularly soft on crime. And uh, Senator Hawley went through a few cases that, when she was a judge, she gave a sentence that was lower than the sentencing guidelines and what the prosecution was asking for in the area of child pornography. And I think we're going to hear a lot of that during the questioning in the next couple of days. But what Hawley didn't mention is that what is very important to the judge is not just what the sentencing guidelines are or what the prosecution wants, but also what the probation officer who does a thorough investigation of the defendant and all of the factors um, recommends and also takes into consideration the uh, opinion of the defense counsel. So it was a very one-sided, oh my gosh, she's soft on child porn. 
Um, and uh, Senator Cornyn said, oh, she was representing terrorists. You know, she represented a Guantanamo detainee. And I think we need to keep in mind that John Adams, who was a lawyer and also I think our second president of the United States, said that nothing made him prouder than representing British soldiers, that he thought that the role of a defense attorney was to represent everyone, um, no matter who it was. And Katanji Brown-Jackson would be the first former public defender to be on the Supreme Court. Um, and not just um, as uh, Senator Grassley said, well, well, John Roberts represented two criminal defendants and Amy Coney Barrett represented one. Well, a public defender, I know because I've been one for many years, represents all cases that come before her and, uh, and and provide the Sixth Amendment right to counsel that the Supreme Court has interpreted to apply to all indigent defendants, not just defendants who can afford them. Um, so I think we're going to see uh, a real attack on her by the Republican senators in the confirmation hearing um, about the fact that she represented people charged with crime. Um, and, uh, and, and I also thought it was very interesting that Lindsey Graham, you know, I voted for Republicans and Democratic nominees, but this is a new game. He said game several times, as if this is a game. He said that there's a, whole, there's a wholesale effort by the left to take down a nominee from my state. And he's talking about Michelle Childs, um, who would have gotten 60 votes, he said. Uh, you know, in most, the most radical elements of the left, you were their choice. Judge Jackson uh, basically signaling that he's going to vote against her, even though he voted for her last year in her confirmation hearing to be a judge on the um, the uh, Court of Appeals for the District Deter District of Columbia Circuit. So I think we're going to see uh, a lot of attacks by the Republicans, probably more softball questions by the Democrats. But um, bottom line uh, is, is that this is a historic nomination, the first black woman among 115 justices on the Supreme Court in over 200 years um, to uh, be nominated to the Supreme Court. Is the fact that there is such a divide in America that it depends on who controls the Senate, who gets chosen to be on the uh, Supreme Court? The short answer is no, but the longer answer is I think you're going to see a couple of Republicans, Murkowski and Collins, vote for her. So I, Because they, along with Lindsey Graham, did vote for her confirmation to the Court of Appeals. But it's certainly not like the old days where Ruth Bader Ginsburg got, I don't know, 98 or 93 votes out of 100. Strom Thurmond, one of the most racist senators ever to sit in the Senate, voted for her. Ted Kennedy voted to confirm Scalia. Those were different days, and now things are very, very polarized. We saw Republicans, Mitch McConnell, basically stealing a seat from Barack Obama, not even giving Merrick Garland a hearing. These are very, very tense times. The polarization is unprecedented, and no, it does not bode well. Marjorie Cohen. And in international news, Ukraine rejected ultimatums from Russia demanding it stop defending besieged Maripol, where hundreds of thousands of civilians are suffering through Russian bombardments laying waste to their city. Russia's military had ordered residents of Mariupol to surrender by 5 a.m. local time today, saying those who did so 
could leave while those who stayed would be handed to tribunals run by Moscow-backed separatists. Ukrainian Deputy Prime Minister Irina Verseshuk replied, there could be no question of any surrender in Mariupol. Mariupol, a port city on the Sea of Azov that was home to 400,000 people, has run short of food, medicine, power, and water. And in more, war, in more war news, at least eight people were killed when a Russian missile hit a shopping mall in Kiev, one of the most powerful explosions yet in the Ukrainian capital. Meanwhile, peace talks resumed today, and apparently an agreement had been reached on evacuation and supply corridors for besieged towns and cities, but Mariupol was not one of them. And as the real war rages, the war of words among supporters of Russia intensified. Moscow's permanent delegate to UNESCO, the United Nations Cultural Organization, blasted what she says is the hypocrisy of the world body toward Russian nationals. She says were attacked by Ukraine in the Donbass region. What an orchestrated spectacle of malice, slander, bile and hypocrisy on a platform of a leading humanitarian forum. What a parade of double standards and arrogance. Anyone who allowed himself to demand something from us here should cool down their moralizing ardor. And after the democratic bombings they committed, your hands are covered in blood up to your elbows. Unlike you, Russia has followed, follows and will follow international law. To those who so emotionally and eloquently described the suffering of the Ukrainian people, I want to say, yes, it is so. Yes, these sufferings are terrible. And yes, part of the Ukrainian population has been living in basements and under bombings for eight years. And yes, this is how people live in some countries for many long years. But you always stand a blind eye to it. Are they not people to you? And what about the children of Donbass, whose monument is erected on the Alley of Angels in Donetsk? Are their lives worthless? Russia's deputy delegate to UNESCO, Tatyana Dovgalenko. In related news, the war between Russia and Ukraine has found its way to the waters off of Long Island. Environmental activists are protesting oil tankers carrying Russian fossil fuels into the New York area. Some energy companies have been taking advantage of a 45-day grace period before an official ban on oil and gas from the country goes into effect. Greenpeace members boarded two small boats yesterday to confront the Minerva Verga, a massive tanker carrying crude oil from Russia, as it anchored off the coast of Rockaway. The vessel is among dozens of oil and gas tankers that have discharged Russian-linked fuel in the United States in recent weeks. One of the Greenpeace members who went out in the inflatable boat, Arusha Narayanan, spoke with WBAI. Greenpeace USA is at the marina in Brooklyn right now because we are sending the message that oil fuels war. We've been tracking a tanker that's been coming from Russia carrying Russian fossil fuel. And now is the time that we need to be accelerating towards renewable energy and not doubling down on oil and gas products. There was supposed to be an embargo of Russian products. There is an embargo of Russian oil and gas by the Biden administration. There is a 45-day grace period since that executive order was announced. This special started before the announcement, so it's traveling here legally. So why are you protesting it? I mean, no other ships will be coming after this for a while. We are protesting the oil and gas in general and the fact that it fuels conflict and death around the globe. Right now, we need to make sure that we are manufacturing and deploying renewable energy and energy efficiency equipment here in the U.S. that we can also manufacture for Europe as well. And so that's what we're here doing right now, protesting. What's it been like protesting? I mean, were you out there on the boat? Yeah, so we were out on the boat yesterday. What kind of boat is it? It's an inflatable speedboat. More than one or? We have two of them. And how many people does it hold? 
between the two boats, it holds about eight people. Tell me a little bit about the mechanics of this. We do blow it up. We have experts in this. Currently, the oil tanker itself is off of Long Island. We've been tracking it to New York Harbor, which will likely be its final destination to dock at one of the refineries on the harbor. So when you went out there, you just you held up your banner while you were next to the boat. Is that it? Uh, yes. Was there any response from people on board the ship at all? So we actually were not able to see the ship yesterday because it was at Long Island. There's a lot close to Long Island. We were at Brooklyn near Brooklyn Marina and New York Harbor. We're still anticipating it'll get here and so just waiting for it. With the New York skyline and with the Statue of Liberty to send the message that we need peace in this moment and we need to stop supporting the oil and gas industry and the conflict and death that it's driving. Are you going to try and block it from entering the harbor? Uh, we are not. Not this time anyway, right? So great. So this is basically a political message just bringing attention to the oil and gas related to war. Yeah, and there's actually a policy lever that the Biden administration can use right now to send a signal that they are doubling down on renewable energy. The Biden administration can use the Defense Production Act, which would help make sure that we're manufacturing and deploying renewable energy and energy efficiency equipment both for U.S. and for Europe as well. About the uh, Coast Guard or U.S. Uh, police forces, are they uh, interfering with you at all or have they approached you at all? We haven't gotten any kind of conflict or anything. Nothing like that? They haven't come over and said you can't do that or anything like that? Or how about the media yeah. response? Has it been getting out there? We were still talking to the media. I think people are just, the media is also curious about tracking these vessels that are coming to the U.S. That on their way even before the embargo. What does your banner say again? So one side says oil fuels war, and the other side says no war. Arusha Narayanan is member of the environmental activist group Greenpeace. The protest followed a string of U.S. sanctions against Russia, including a ban on fossil fuels that Biden said would deal another powerful blow to Putin's war machine. But officials in Ukraine have complained that oil tankers, some of them owned by the United States, continue to transport millions of gallons of oil out of Russia. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul Durienzo. New York City's new health commissioner, Dr. Ashwin Vasan, provided his first COVID-19 briefing Friday and addressed, concern, addressed concerns on the rise uh, in infections linked to the new sub-Omicron variant known as BA.2. He says while the current COVID-19 alert level in the city is low, it presents enough of a threat that private business vaccine mandates will stay in place indefinitely and students under five must remain masked at school for now. Vasan says symptoms of the new variant are similar to Omicron. There is no evidence that the subvariant causes more severe illness or that current COVID-19 vaccines are less effective against it. Nevertheless, they say that New Yorkers should remain vigilant. Dr. Maria Van Kerkhove of the World Health Organization says the variant is concerning, but the world is better prepared for new outbreaks. We see an increase in BA.2 with this increased growth advantage over BA.1. So for the person out there, everybody that's out there that's, that's watching this, um, what is important for you to know is that this virus continues to be dangerous. This virus transmits very efficiently between people, but there's a lot that you can do. At a global level and as an organization, what we're doing and working with, with governments, we're working with our partners to do two major things. One is to increase vaccination coverage among those who are most at risk in all countries, not just some countries, and making sure we reach that 70% target by June 2022. 
but we're also trying to do everything that we can to support the reduction in transmission. We will not be able to prevent all transmissions. That's not the goal. To prevent all infection and all transmission, that's not attainable at this point, but we need to drive transmission down. Dr. Maria Van Karkova, the World Health Organization. In recent months, the United States has been trying to shed many of the masking and vaccination mandates that helped contain the pandemic, but proved to be wildly unpopular. But in a report penned by Walter Bragman and Alex Koch, How Dark Money Shaped the School Safety Debate at the DailyPoster.com, the authors claim dark political money has shifted debate on COVID into dangerous territory, like sending kids back to school before it's safe. School reopenings, getting kids back into schools would free up their parents to return to work. They estimated that 27 million Americans were dependent on child care in order to work. Getting kids back would probably be a prerequisite to tapping into the full productive capacity of the workforce. So, so that's really where the push came from. So why don't they support uh, all the benefits that people have wanted at a federal level for uh, taking care of children or taking care of women when they're pregnant and things like that? These organizations in particular, and Charles Koch, the oil tycoon billionaire who's behind them, is that they come from a strong libertarian tradition where in order to justify these sort of obscene gains at the top, they don't want higher taxes, and they're very libertarian in that sense. Government should do the least possible, interfere the least amount possible, and basically just leave the markets alone and let rich guys like Charles Koch make as much money as they can make. So that means they see schools as babysitters? Essentially, yes. Schools are the daycare that we don't provide. Coke-affiliated groups like the Independent Women's Forum start putting out questioning, oh, are we doing harm to our children by keeping them out of school? Is this really damaging? And, you know, I talked to experts, pediatricians. I spoke to a clinical psychiatrist for young people. And these narratives have become wildly popular today. People regurgitate them all over the place in major media. And there's very little backing behind any of them. Yes, learning loss is a problem. Yes, we young kids need socialization, and that is inevitable. But we're also in a public health crisis. Something like a million children have lost caregiver worldwide. It's just a lot of needless death. People need to understand that it didn't have to be like this. Other countries did more for people to keep them out of harm's way, paid them to stay home. And the only reason that we haven't done that is because capital, really, that's it inordinate amount of influence in our politics thanks to a series of supreme court decisions going back to 1976 it's left us completely vulnerable and killed so many people walter bagman is an author of how dark money shaped the school safety debate at the dailyposter.com and with mayor adams calling for a three percent cut in spending from city agencies schools chancellor david banks acknowledged to the city council today that he's not exactly working with his dream budget banks said during testimony on the city's preliminary budget that's never pretty that's never easy it's certainly not something i was looking forward to having to deal with but it's my reality and i've got to figure it out the city will cut school budgets by 215 million dollars next school year $295 million the year after, and $375 million three years from now. 
and formerly incarcerated individuals rallied outside Governor Kathy Hochul's Midtown office today after two more men perished in New York City jail system last week. Herman Diaz, 52, and George Pagan, 49, brought the death toll at the jail to three this year. A coalition of advocacy, of advocacy groups took Hochul to task for allowing Rikers to continue despite worsening conditions in the ramshackle island prison. I'm elected knows why do we keep going through the same thing? Press conferences, rallies, protests. What more needs to happen? When you have people that are held in these circumstances, when you have people held in humanitarian circumstances, something's gonna have to happen. Our governor has an opportunity to intervene. On Friday, a Rikers Island inmate choked to death on an orange with no correction officer patrolling the floor to call for help. Security video showed that other detainees tried to render aid but were unsuccessful by the time help arrived. It was too late. And in more local news, several trains were delayed in Manhattan, Brooklyn and Queens during rush hour traffic uh, during the rush hour this morning, as according to the MTA. As of 10.30 a.m., F and G trains were running with extensive delays in both directions. But both trains were making regular stops in Brooklyn. Earlier in the day, F train service was suspended in both directions between Coney Island and the 2nd Avenue station in Manhattan, and G train service was suspended between the Bedford Nostrand Avenue stations and the Church Avenue station. Service was restored to the Smith 9th Street station in Brooklyn on both lines at about 9 20 a.m. limited northbound F service and southbound F service to Church Avenue was restored by about 9.50 a.m. According to the MTA, the service issues are due to a loss of power causing signal problems at Church Avenue. Police said a 40-year-old man was struck by a southbound train on the tracks at the Grand Central Station and was transported to Bellevue Hospital with a leg injury. He's expected to survive. There are still delays on the sixth line in both directions as of 10.05 a.m. In Queens, meanwhile, fewer Manhattan-bound EFM&R trains operated during the morning rush, and the ones that did operated at slower speeds due to a signal problem near the 67th avenue station the mta said our crews have been investigating the signal problems and cannot fix the issue at this time to help keep trains moving during the rush hour our crews are pausing their investigation and leaving the track so it seems like the subways was a uh, a mass of different unexpected events that happened all at once that brought down our train system today hopefully folks are having a better trip back home as of this evening meanwhile Finally, interesting story, the famed Hotel Chelsea is officially opening again after an 11-year hiatus following multiple attempts to revive the historic property. After years of construction delays and uncertainty surrounding its return, the former home to Andy Warhol, Jackson Pollock, Janis Joplin, and scores of other artists has select rooms available now. The hotel confirmed that today in a press release. Even though the hotel is still undergoing renovations, it said it's currently offering a select number of rooms with limited amenities to customers. They said on their website that as Hotel Chelsea emerges from rehab, we are offering a few rooms at hard hat rates to guests willing to tolerate a little construction. Hotel Chelsea said it will fully reopen this summer with 155 restored guest rooms available for rent. The building has been designated a New York City landmark since March 1966 and has been listed on the National Register of Historic Places 
business since 1977. El Quijote, the famous bar and restaurant on the second level of the 23rd Street Hotel, is also reopened to diners after closing in 2018 amid the building's renovation. A lot of history in that building going back over a century, but particularly in the 60s and 70s and early 80s when every rock star and famous musician who visited New York seemed to stay there or live there for a while. It was also the home of infamous, uh, the infamous death of uh, uh, Sid Vicious and his wife, or his, the wife of Sid, Sid Vicious, the famous rock star from the band The Sex Pistols. Uh, she died. And we're not sure really what happened at his hand or her hand, but uh, afterwards he himself died of a heroin overdose, so it will always remain a mystery of what happened to Sid and Nancy. That's on the news for Monday, March 21st, 2022. The news producer Linda Perry, our engineer is Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>